Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. With us today, um, a lot of you responded to the show that we broadcast yesterday from uh, Athens, from the University of Georgia campus. We Greg Bluestein's with us today, and of course, Greg, you were with us for the show that we recorded Monday night. We had a great time in Athens. The Athens crowds were so welcoming. They love you and, and uh, Galloway. It was so much fun. That's my that's my second home. I went, I went to school there, of course. So did Jim. And it was great being back, and they had a really great crowd, and I got to speak to some classes on Tuesday. It was, yeah. it was a blast. Yeah. Uh, Galloway and Bluestein, heroes of the journalism school <laughs> at UGA. <laughs> uh, if you're uh, watching us on Facebook Live right now, you know that we're back in Atlanta. We're continuing to come to you from our temporary studio while our talk studio is being rebuilt. So if it looks different, that's because it is. Uh, we're going to be in that new studio within the next couple of months, we think. Um, got a lot to talk about today. Tamar Hallerman. AJC political reporter in Washington is with us. How are you today, Tamar? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. You. We're going to turn to you in just a minute after I introduce the panel. You have been busy. You've you've been filing like crazy, and we're going to talk about the several uh, um, stories that you've been keeping track of. Before we get to that, as I said, Greg Bluestein is here. He is one of the political reporters at the AJC. You read him. I noticed on Sunday, Bluestein. You had not one but two byline stories on the front page of the paper. That they, ought to be illegal. They keep us busy. Um, and it was a very busy end of the legislative session, so we had a lot to write about. <laughs> Caesar Mitchell is uh, back with us, former president of the Atlanta City Council. He ran for uh, mayor a couple of years back. Caesar, we always enjoy having you here. It's really great to be back. And we have a first-timer, Jake Evans. He is the head of the Atlanta Young Republicans. He's the chair of the Georgia State Ethics Commission, and you're an attorney at Holland and Knight. That's right. That's right. Good to be here. Joined by my esteemed colleagues. Yeah. And Jake, one more thing. You're the son <laughs> of Randy Evans, one of the most contentious, difficult political leaders in the history of the state. <laughs> Just imagine being his son. <laughs> no, Randy's been on yeah, the I show like on any number of occasions. He's a great guy. Uh, he's been a very, very, he's been an active leader in the Georgia Republican Party. And Jake is starting to rival him on CNN appearances. Oh, uh, terrific. Well, That's congratulations. Right. All right, we got a lot to talk with you about as well. Let's start, uh, if we can't. Oh, but we should say, of course, what's interesting to me is your father was named ambassador to Luxembourg by President Trump. So he's over there living it up. <laughs> and you haven't even gotten over there to visit. I yet. haven't. I've, I've got to make time to do it. I've been so busy <laughs> with law and um, I was in I was on the U.S. delegation to Taiwan. So I was there two weeks ago. So I've been more stuff than I can do. <laughs> Mark right. and I are pitching an enterprise story over there. Sounds good to me. And mm -hmm. while you're at it, you can go visit uh, Jackie Cushman's dad, whose wife, Callista, is the ambassador to the Vatican. There you go. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get going with uh, topics for today. Um, Tamara, you filed a major piece. It was on the front page of the AJC this morning in which you talked with farmers. You really told some heartrending stories about farmers affected by Hurricane Michael in South Georgia, who some of whom are mortgaging off, are selling off pieces of their land to try to stay above water. They're waiting and waiting and waiting for federal relief that does not appear to be heading their way anytime soon. Tell us about your story. Yeah, sure. So I, I wanted to kind of put a human face to all of this gridlock in, in Washington. I've, I've filed plenty of kind of incremental stories on all the fighting over Puerto Rico with Trump, Senator Schumer, all these kind of moving pieces. But I wanted to kind of capture what um, what all this indecision in Washington was meaning for folks on the ground in Georgia and for a lot of these farmers, you know, who some of them, like like one farmer I talked to, Ken Hickey, down in Thomas County, 90% of his, his cotton, uh, you know, his uh, cotton yield was wiped out by the by the storm. So, so he mentioned he just mortgaged off a fourth piece of his family farm. Um, and, and he said this was the last time he was doing it. If he doesn't have help in the next year, it's done. He's given up the farm, move on to something else after four generations of his family being there. So um, pretty powerful stuff. But 
it's not looking like the situation's any better up here in D.C. Just just to be clear, just to be clear, and, you know, anybody can weigh in if they want, um, what's happening with this bill, there is there is a measure to provide emergency relief for, for a number of communities across the country, uh, parts of states that have been affected by various natural disasters. The uh, holdup has been that Democrats in the Senate have been demanding that Puerto Rico get the aid that they feel that uh, uh, the people of Puerto Rico deserve. The president has adamantly refused to do that. And so this whole thing has come to loggerheads. And before we bring in the panel, let's listen to what Georgia Representative Austin Scott said on the floor of the House about this impasse and the and the effect it's having on not just Georgia, but other states that have dealt with terrible weather situations. For months, we've stressed the magnitude of the damage to our colleagues. And for months, we've promised this was a priority for the White House and congressional leadership from both sides of the aisle. Any bill to fund the government will have disaster relief. I don't know how many times I've heard it. I can't name all the people I heard it from. And as we stand here today, six months later, these can only be called empty promises. Never before have we seen American communities that were wrecked with the catastrophes neglected like this. Calls to White House staff have gone unheeded and but for one tweet on April 1st, it seems the president has moved on. And then last week, the Senate showed how truly ugly and partisan politics have become, voting down a measure that would have brought billions in federal relief to communities in my home state of Georgia and around the country desperately need to get back on their feet again. Tamara, it's hard to know exactly. I mean, I think both Republicans and Democrats uh, can uh, call out the other party on this one, and it's hard to know quite where to place the blame for this. We do know the president seems to have a personal animosity toward the government uh, in Puerto Rico. He claims they're incompetent. He claims they are uh, wasting money and doesn't want to send him another penny. But there's also been a personal feud back and forth between uh, the president, the governor of Puerto Rico, the mayor of San Juan, and uh, Democrats say they need especially food relief money there that, that the president doesn't want to give them. On the other hand, the Democrats don't seem to be willing to give up the Puerto Rican aid in favor of helping people here in their own states across the country. So th th there's blame to go around or no? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You see the president who, yeah, you have, I can't remember if it was the governor of Puerto Rico or the mayor of San Juan going on TV and saying he punched Trump in the throat. That probably doesn't help get the, the two sides closer to an agreement. At the same time, you know, you're right. There is money in this bill for things like California wildfires, which decimated portions of Southern California last summer. Um, so, so that was with the expectation that Democrats from California would want to vote for this bill. Um, but, but, you know, the Democrats have good, done a really good job of staying unified on this. That's how they think they're going to get all this money. You, you have Republicans from Georgia claiming that Democrats have moved the goalposts a lot during these negotiations. Um, they said they designed this bill to be bipartisan, um, that they were giving Democrats what they had asked for back in December, and then they say all of a sudden the Democrats want more. It's unclear to me exactly you know, where that line is and, and what those private negotiations were back in December, but it looks like right now nobody's willing to let up. What was so remarkable about Austin Scott's speech, you know, he's from a deeply Republican district mm -hmm. near Tifton. He's one of the first ones to, first of all, question the president and his commitment to the cause of, of helping farmers after Hurricane Michael. He's also the only Republican I know of who's gone on record being willing to give more money to Puerto Rico beyond what was in this Johnny Isaacs and David Perdue bill. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, but right now the House just left town for two and a half weeks, so it's looking like it's going to be May by the time we get any revived negotiations. Um, all right, panel. There are those of you here in the studio, weigh in. Caesar, you look like you're ready. To well, you know, I, I, it's it's all about politics, and and the closer we get to the presidential election, the more it'll be about it'll be, it'll be about politics. And I think it's 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 you know one of those situations where you've got both sides. You know, how do you say cutting off your nose to spite your face? And I think at the end, both may lose. Uh, but I think both are making calculations based upon. Upon politics, I think uh, for, for for Democrats, I think you know Democrats have to be very careful here because you're talking about disaster relief throughout 
the entire country in areas that need it. And what seems to be weighing in the balance, whether or not there is more or incremental funding for Puerto Rico, the American public might not buy that and agree with that over time. And look, in the summer, when when Congress could come back, is too late for for a lot of farmers. Planting seasons here, as Tamar said, they're having to mortgage off parts of their property. They're going to have to make tough decisions about what to plant, what to do ahead of this growing season. Um, it's it's a, you know we're talking about generational damage. And what strikes me during this debate is this is a test of the Georgia delegation's clout in Washington. This is a singular priority. If you ask everyone from Senator Isaacs and Senator Perdue on down, it's, it's, if not their number one priority, it is, it is right up there in top three. And yet, despite you know, most of the delegation uh, pulling together on this, it's still going nowhere in Washington. It doesn't matter how close Senator Perdue is with, with Donald Trump. It doesn't matter the bipartisan relations Senator Isaacson has built with uh, across party lines. It's, it's, it's got to be so frustrating for, for Georgia lawmakers to, be, to, to be just be stalling on this after, what, it's been six months, seven months since, since this hurricane? Um, and yet nothing, nothing's happened. Jake. Yeah. yeah. And for both Purdue and Isaacson, I mean, you're talking about their base. I mean, you're talking yeah. about rural Georgia. You're talking about farmers who, who are being disproportionately harmed outside of the city of Atlanta. Uh, but I, Caesar's right. I mean, the, the issues in D.C., which historically have not been um, split issues, are politicized. I mean, everything in some way or another is a political fight. Now it's coming down to Puerto Rico. Uh, and the reality is the, the president takes things personal. Uh, I think that the, the comments from the Puerto Rico uh, leadership there, he's going to take to heart, and he believes in his heart of hearts that they're incompetent, they don't properly use money, and I, I think it's unlikely he backs down. What did you think, uh, uh, Jake, as uh, uh, the leader of the Atlanta Young Republicans, when you heard Austin Scott actually call out the president on the floor? It was a tempered statement, but he also pointed out that broken promises have been aplenty, and he pointed out that, that the vice president actually visited the area and there's still nowhere. So uh, it, it was interesting to see how far he was willing to go mm-hmm. in calling attention yeah. to the president and the vice president not getting this done. Yeah, well, Representative Scott wants to get reelected. And he, he knows that he is in a very, very tenuous position because it is his electorate who is being harmed. And we're talking about real real harm, as Tamara just said. I mean, these are individuals that are potentially going bankrupt. They're individuals that can't pay mortgages on their properties. Um, and so he's in a difficult position because he's got Trump, who no doubt about it, has real loyalty in his electorate. And he's got to balance that with farmers who are the core of who's going to vote for him or not vote against, or vote against him. And he's got to weigh that. And I think he made a calculated and correct decision. So it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, uh, you know, Caesar pointed it out that 2020 is a good lord let's not <laughs> let's hope that there's been resolution this long before it becomes an issue in the presidential uh, uh you know down the road in the presidential race uh bluestein you got some news for us yeah. about about an hour from now something that's going to happen yeah i mean state officials have a have, are in a bind too because obviously the state does not have anything, anything close to the budget the federal government has and the three billion or so dollars in this relief fund would wipe out this, the state's entire rainy day reserves. Um, but you're also seeing Governor Kemp get increasingly frustrated over over this these delays, and he has much of the same base you're talking about. Um, and agriculture is the state's number one industry. He's going to have a press conference around three thirty where he's going to talk about um, some of the things, some of the damage, some of the things they're looking at. And I've got a quote from him that he's going to say, which is this: "This gridlock exposes the rotten core of some in Congress. They would." rather crush an entire industry, destroying the livelihood of countless Americans, than do something that the opposition party wants. This dire situation highlights the brokenness in Washington. We have reached a low point as a nation. Caesar, that's fascinating. Go yeah, ahead. So, 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 that, so this, is, this is kind of, how does that show go? This is where we are or who we are, whatever it is. But, you know, Governor Kemp points out that you've got some folks who have a rotten core in Washington in Congress. Uh, But when you flip it on the other side and go down the street to the White House, you've got a president who's willing to let, you know, millions of people in Puerto Rico suffer because he's mad at the leadership there. Uh, The problem, though, and it's so unfortunate, I hate saying this as a Democrat, is that Democrats stand to lose more than the president because people know President Trump is going to act like that. And his base doesn't budge one 
millimeter away from him. And so I think at the end of the day, the question becomes, who's going to capitulate? I really like the fact uh, that, that Governor Kemp is making a statement, and hopefully that statement will lead to some sort of action on, on the part of the state uh, to go to, you know, take hand, you know, matters in our own hands to the extent that we can financially. Tamar, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, so I, I think about kind of the roots of all of this. Why are we here? And and for me, it's kind of a two-track thing. The first one I kind of mentioned in my story um, in today's paper, you know, the roots of this, you know, the, the seeds were sown a long time ago. You know, Hurricane Katrina required a ton of money from Congress. People were already, you know, that's when deficits were high. People were already starting to be worried about government spending. Hurricane Sandy in 2012 was a nasty partisan fight that took a long time, and there, there was a lot of bad blood about you know, I'm from New York and you Southern Republicans are denying me, you know, and now you're hearing the argument in exactly the reverse. At the same time, you have this new, you know, this new beef with Trump and, and the House Democrats who, you know, a lot of them will privately say, we see this as a way to stick it to Trump. He needs to know that we're in charge now and we're not just going to take his way or the highway. You know, they, they feel like they won the government shutdown back in January by being able to hold together and tell him no over and over and over again. And that's exactly what they're trying to do now. Um, but as Caesar said, you know, it is a very risky proposition. And if you're somebody from a state like California or Hawaii that's heard a lot from natural disasters. How much can you vote no on something like this? Yeah, you know, Jake, I do think Caesar made a really interesting point. Uh, the president has in no way tried to make a rational, intellectual argument for why Puerto Rico shouldn't get more money. He has made it over and over. He's argued and, and attacked the uh, uh, leaders of, of the island of Puerto Rico. Um, and yet, as Caesar says... When if, if they lose their whole planting season, then it definitely becomes a big issue for the South Georgia farmers and others down there in the 2020 election. But there's no reason in the world to think that they were going to they would abandon their president on this. They'll continue to blame Democrats, yeah. I <clears throat> suspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the reality is Trump's point is Puerto Rico's already been given a substantial amount of money. We're talking tens of millions, wasn't efficiently used. Um, I, I think 50 to 60 percent of the citizens in Puerto Rico are living on food stamps. Obviously, there's difficult um, situation down there. But his argument is I'm not going to give more money to a territory which is not shown an inclination to efficiently and properly spend it. There has to be accountability. Um, obviously, it's gotten personal. But I will tell you, Donald Trump is not a person you want to create personal hostilities with. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the GOP primary for president, Every person that went head to head with Donald Trump, they ended up losing. Yeah, Greg Bluestein. Uh, so you're going to be uh, reporting. I assume you'll run over to the news mm -hmm. news right conference. But the governor in this case has limited uh, 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 resources to to deal with this, doesn't he? They they did during the session allocate some ten million or so money. If I, if I got that and remember last out, right? year there was also that special session right. that was that was that was a heftier sum. But look, I mean when th that's that's one of the primary roles of federal government is yeah. helping with disaster relief and, and the state feels like the government should chip in um, you know for the for the brunt of this bill. So there's some loan refinancing. There's some options I'm sure they're looking at and we might hear a little bit more about that today. Um, but I think they're also going to push for the Purdue Isaacson compromise because correct me if I'm wrong tomorrow, but they had six hundred million dollars in that in that bill for Puerto for Rico. Puerto Rico. Yeah, and th that would be some sort of middle ground to appease both sides. And it, again, it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere till the summer. Yeah, tomorrow you pointed out. I mean, Easter recess is upon us. I those farmers are not going to get their crops in the ground without some extraordinary intervention. Yeah, you start to see some talk, you know, some, some chatter. Maybe Congress can create some board in Puerto Rico that helps oversee make, making sure federal money is spent, spent properly. That's some kind of new discussion over the last Oh, yeah, years. and that'll <laughs> happen quickly. They'll resolve that quickly, and then the aid will be on its way in no time. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, it's, it's not looking great. I'm already hearing aides who are kind of quietly saying, you know, acknowledging that, that it might take another really huge natural disaster before Congress gets the kick in the pants it needs to really make a compromise. And, and that also it's shows kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. And that also shows how quickly the fortunes turn because Senator Isaacson was right around the corner of the studio 
like what a couple just weeks told ago? us a few weeks ago when he was in here to do political rewind help is on its way i we think we pretty got well it. got this mm. worked out yeah so mm. uh it's certainly not for want of trying by either no. isaacson or uh david purdue uh let's move on uh greg the um the governor you reported a story on governor kemp going to atlanta rotary mm-hmm. which is we colloquially call downtown rotary i bet caesar mitchell you must be a member of downtown i am i am not you're Whoa. not i am not because yeah, i was going to say not. every corporate leader most uh most elected important elected officials are members i was you know i tried to get them to bring me in at one point too caesar they didn't want anything <laughs> to do with me so you're not alone but kemp went uh, to that group last monday I think, mm-hmm. and oh, this past Monday, yeah, a yeah, a week ago Monday. No, no, two no, days ago. two days ago. Thank you. And what did he say about the Hartsfield Jackson, the proposed state takeover of Hartsfield Jackson? Yeah, I was kind of there watching for any heartbeat type news from business leaders because there's a lot of corporate executives, and he was asked about the airport, and he said, "Well, sometimes we should be thankful that something didn't pass." And I bet Mayor Bottoms wanted him to say that about two months ago because he was he was studiously quiet about that legislation, that airport takeover bill throughout this entire process, unlike Governor Deal, who quickly came out against it in 2017 and 2018 when it popped up. Governor Kemp was much more hand, arm's length approach. Well, after the session ends, he says, well, sometimes we, we should be glad that, that these types of bills failed. And he also said that this gives Mayor Bottoms and the city more time to uh, to sort of vindicate themselves and to show that they, their transparency efforts at the airport. Yeah, are Caesar, one of the things that Greg reported in his piece about this was the governor said, I understand both sides. Yeah. I think they both have reasonable arguments to make. To me, that really always begs a question. Is that the role of a leader to to kind of shrug and say, well, you both make good points. Uh, Nathan Deal stepped in immediately when this came up during his tenure. Uh, Kemp, in many issues, including this one this session, chose to back away a bit, let legislators hash things out. He stepped in on a couple of very big issues, and this was one of them. Well, I think if it's an issue that doesn't go to the core of something that's very important to him, uh, I think he's using this first year as an opportunity just to kind of see the lay yeah. of the land and mm-hmm. to see where everyone's temperature is and kind of see how the initial kind of skirmish down below turns out. You know, who gets the first round, who gets the second round. Uh, I think Governor Kemp's calculus, I have no way of knowing this, maybe around the airport uh, is number one, you know, you know, how is this going to impact economic development in the state of Georgia? Uh, and with the looming federal investigation, he's thinking, well, it could go both ways. So maybe I just need to stay yeah, out. It of this may have been the right road. decision. Exactly. Uh, Jake, two things on this. Number one, Mayor Bottoms has now appointed, she's created a task force, a transparency and uh, ethics mm-hmm. task force, going to be headed up by Joe Wilkinson, who was a longtime Atlanta Republican state representative and the head of the Georgia House uh, Ethics And close to Kemp. Committee and very close to Brian Kemp. And and I think Mayor Bottoms' uh, position on this is, you know, if we haven't board that can watch uh, the practices out at the airport, contracting, that sort of thing, maybe we can make legislators a little bit more comfortable. At the same time, uh, it's a long time between now and the session in January, and it strikes me that the takeover of the airport could very well be only one indictment away (laughs) by B.J. Pack in this federal investigation that has to do with airport contracts to to, to tipping this in the balance of a state takeover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I think that that was an olive branch in a way for uh, Mayor Bottoms to, to Governor Kemp. I mean, I think we saw the potential success that the state of Georgia and the city of Atlanta can have under Governor Deal's administration if they work together. Uh, obviously, Mayor Bottoms was actively uh, endorsing and campaigning and assisting uh, Stacey Abrams. I think that that hurt Governor Kemp in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and to uh, dovetail from what Caesar said, I think Kemp has been coming in balancing a lot of dynamics, 
trying to build up some unity, trying not to take on controversial bills um, like RIFRA. And in addition to that, working and building a relationship with the city of Atlanta, and I think the way that he handled the airport bill, and I'll say that my law firm actually represented the city of Atlanta in that, so the fact it didn't pass is kudos to our lobbying team. I'm not a part of our lobbying team, but <laughs> I, I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, but Didn't the former <clears throat> mayor used to be a part of that firm, Greg Bruce? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what was his name? Reed. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go but, ahead. but I, I think that in a, in a way that uh, Mayor Bottoms is prospectively trying to address any concerns around the city of Atlanta, um, and she's also trying to extend a vol- olive uh, branch to Governor Kemp by putting one of Wilkinson, who is a close colleague and friend of Governor Kemp, in, in that seat. The, the Kemp, if you talk to the Kemp inner circle in December or January, they didn't want this they weren't a fan of this bill, right? I mean, the people close to camp, the governor never said that, but the people close to camp were not all that enthusiastic about taking one of their first initiatives being able to take Atlanta's crown jewels away from it and picking an even bigger fight with the city. But at the same time, if you're Governor Kemp and you go into your first session as the governor and a faction in the Senate, a powerful faction in the Georgia Senate has this as one of their top priorities, you also are reluctant to take it off the table that early, too, for a bargaining reasoning. And then it ended up becoming morphed into this whole Franken bill and ended up scuttling some of his actual priorities, too. All right, let's mm-hmm. do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. When we come back, uh, Stacey Abrams is only, the only uh, woman Georgia Democrat who suddenly found the national spotlight. Uh, we'll talk about Abrams and Senator Jen Jordan. This is Political Rewind. This spring here at GPB, our goal is to cover the cost of the programs you love and hopefully eliminate the spring fund drive. How? Well, instead of cutting into the programs you listen to on GPB, like we do during a traditional fund drive, you'll hear short reminders like this one. We're calling it GPB Stealth Drive. Hi, I'm Tom Barclay, GPB's Radio Operations Manager. People who listen just like you're doing right now provide the single most important and reliable funding for everything you hear on GPB. So right now, we're counting on your support. So while you're thinking about it, call 800-222-4788, 800-222-4788, or donate online at gpb.org. Because public radio matters to you, do it now, and thank you so much. Uh, we're back on Political Rewind. The uh, Greg Bluestein, we're still playing a waiting game with Stacey Abrams, who continues <clears throat> excuse me, to say, maybe I'll run for United States Senate against David Perdue or hope to win the nomination to run against David Perdue, which is pretty much a given. If she wants it, she's got it. Uh, or should I run for president? And if I run for president, I'll announce in September. Interesting side note, and we'll get into this in more detail on a different show. The 538 just published a piece on uh, how long you can afford to wait to announce for president. And their (laughs) conclusion was that if Stacey Abrams wants to get into this race, she ought to do it much sooner than September because of the winners in the past 20 years or more, every one of them announced, with the exception of Bill Clinton, announced 300, 400 days ahead of hmm. the election. So we'll talk about that in more detail. But even for governor, she announced well in advance, yeah, right? Yeah, of it course. Was, she, mm-hmm. she filed the paperwork, you know, around this point in that race. So All right. Uh, the reason I bring that up is that uh, she has now been, uh, she's registering now in at least one poll. She had not been included in most of the Democratic primary polling, Caesar. But uh, now the Charleston newspaper has done a poll. She's at 7 percent, which sounds like not much, but it puts her right up there with Poot Buttigieg, who is the big uh, the, the big name of the moment. That puts her in a mix. I, yeah. mean, I mean, most folks are 10 or below. And so for the preponderance of the current candidates to be at 10 percent or below, and she's at 7 percent. She's at 7. Most of them are like 3, and 2, Kamala Harris. Yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. ahead of yeah. Kamala Harris. She, Gillibrand. Yeah. 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 So she's mm-hmm. in, good, in, in yeah. a good place. I, I mean, I think Abrams is benefiting from what I call the Amazon effect. 
And if you remember when Amazon was selecting their second headquarters, they were being talked about more based upon where they are going to go, what they are going to do. And it just incites so much interest that I think Abrams is a very, very savvy politician. I mean, she is she finds a way to be talked about. You look at voter suppression. She worked that narrative. She built that into a national platform now with deciding what she's going to do. She's building that. She's getting more free press about that. I mean, she knows what she's doing. Um, I think that if, if I one interesting consideration for Tomlinson is if for I Tomlinson, yeah, Tomlinson, who is and, and okay, and, and, and is Mayor Tomlinson, yes. Mayor, Mayor Tomlinson yeah. of Columbus, um, is if I were her, I would have thought about going all in, and because what you do if you go all in is you put pressure on Abrams. And the consideration, and Greg's shaking his head at me, but the consideration of that is if Abrams then enters the race, you pull out. Okay, then let me, let's set the table for this because sure, sure. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson uh, just uh, left office as mayor of Columbus. Most of you who listen to this show regularly know that she's been a panelist on this show for the last four years with some regularity. Uh, last Friday on our air, she said, yep, I've formed a committee. I'm officially enter- I- I've officially uh, formed an exploratory committee, which means she can raise money uh, and, f- and organize a campaign team. But, Greg, I said to her when, when she did the show Friday, I, I don't have the, the headline of her news release in front of me, but there's a comma. Yeah. It's, I st- it's you know, if. it's Teresa Tomlinson is running for Senate comma if Stacey Abrams doesn't run. It's sort of she's really working hard to build a a, a base, but that comma really kind of takes some wind out of her sails, doesn't it? It it does. And the reason why I was was shaking my head at Jake is because you talk to Democrats and maybe Caesar will agree. But um, this is this is Stacey Abrams party right now in the state. I mean, if you go against her, uh, you know, even if she's not going to run for Senate, and there's a lot of valid speculation that this presidential um, uh, rumors is a big sign that she's not going to run for the U.S. Senate, but then she could get in on on behalf of one of the opponents rather than staying neutral in the race. But any sort of move that, that any Democrat makes against Stacey Abrams, she'll never forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's a very shrewd politician, and she controls a lot of the levers of, of the state party right now. Her allies are in very high positions, and everyone is deferring to her for a reason. All right, so, but, but Caesar, you know, I think right. t- take what Jake said, and let's talk about it a little more. Uh, I, I think it would be hard to pressure Stacey Abrams right now into doing anything she doesn't want to do. At the same time, uh, there are people in the Democratic Party of Georgia who are starting to say, Come on, Stacey, we need to hear something from you. It's, it, the time is getting ripe. And maybe there's a point to what Jake is saying about this sort of pushing Stacey Abrams to say, all right, here's what I, all right, fine, fine. Teresa Tomlinson's waiting in the wings. Maybe it's time for me to go. Again, Stacey's the, the head of, she is the party right now. She's the titular head of the but, party. But go with what Jake said and, and react to it. No, so I, I have a different not a, a, a slightly different take on it. I think the time is coming and it's and it's near if it's not passed. I think the move on the part of Mayor Tomlinson to uh, announce her exploratory committee uh, was a nudge, quite frankly. Yeah, that's uh, what I think I mean, Jake would if, say. If I, were, if, I were, if I were just to make an assumption, I would assume <laughs> that Mayor Tomlinson and, and Stacey Abrams have a very good relationship, number one, and number two are communicating. They are. Uh, you know, and, so, and so I would think that Teresa's move was one of necessity to make sure she doesn't get too far behind in the process. Well, she says she really needs to start spending start campaign money, raising money. She can't keep uh, paying for people out of her pocket. Exactly. And she's also got to communicate to the public that she's serious about yes, this and yes. really communicate to Stacy at some point okay, well, we're that gonna... she's serious. But I will say one last thing. I think Stacy's energy and momentum now, uh, if she does not run for U.S. Senate, can be at least to some degree conveyed to a candidate who does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's important. All right, tomorrow, uh, Stacey Abrams obviously is in the national spotlight these days. Uh, but there's another Georgia Democratic woman who at least is seems to be starting to move more into the national spotlight. You covered her yesterday when she testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the invitation, I think, of Senator Feinstein. And that's Senator Jen Jordan, right? 
Yeah, and this comes a few weeks after, you know, she the speech she gave from the well of the Georgia Senate against this heartbeat bill, um, the six-week abortion ban kind of went viral. And so she really is very much having her moment. Diane Feinstein, uh, the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, called her asking her to testify against a federal 20-week abortion ban that Senate Republicans are advancing. And she kind of came and gave an abridged version of her speech from the legislature. Um, super, you know, the, the hearing, everyone just kind of talked past each other. It wasn't particularly contentious. It was pretty graphic as people kind of told their own stories. But, um, you know, even she admitted to me after, you know, she didn't think she changed anybody's minds, but it was still pretty cool to be there. Yeah, it it was not, I think, Jake, the most, uh, and Tamar basically said it, it wasn't the best showcase you could want to have if you were Jen Jordan and want national attention. She was one of, I think, five women. They were seated, seated one next to the other. Uh, Their positions were all very cut and dried, pro or anti, uh, the right of a woman to have an abortion. And so there wasn't much of an opportunity for her to break out and make an impact. But here's what I wonder. Maybe Tamar knows, Jake. I wonder who else she she met with while she was up there and what those conversations Mm -hmm. were like. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and she claimed, and, and I did ask her flat out. Sorry, Jake, I did, I did mention or ask her flat out if she was meeting with Chuck Schumer to talk maybe about a Senate seat. <laughs> okay. uh, so she said, she said that was not in her plans. But, yeah. uh, and she yeah. gave you a pretty open-ended answer when you asked her about her future plans, didn't she? Yeah, exactly. And she yeah. mentioned, you know, if you would have asked me two years ago if I was ever going to be in the state legislature, I would have laughed at you. So she she made clear she's not closing any doors, but she also mentioned she has two kids under the age of fifteen. She runs a law firm. She's having fun in her current job. So who knows? Yeah, Jake, uh, I think she's uh, I think Georgia Republicans down at the Capitol have good reason to be a little concerned about what her future might be within state elected politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jen Jordan to me is a perfect example of why we need more lawyers in in the G- General Assembly. I mean, uh, but really, though, she's she can communicate well. She takes on hard issues. She takes on big issues. Um, and, and I think long term, she's undoubtedly going to be a force to be reckoned with making the transition from a local politician to a state and then particularly a national politician is a tremendous sacrifice. The spotlight and your margin of error decreases at such a significant level. Few people can make that transition and maintain it. Uh, but I, I think she is definitely the, a topic of discussion down at the Capitol. And you can see how much she's unnerved Republicans because um, after some conversations with state officials, I added her to the AJC's running list of of, of potential Senate candidates. And of course, I asked, asked um, Senator Jordan. She said the same thing. Essentially, she said to, uh, to Tamar, she gave a very open-ended answer. So I tweeted out something like that, that, that I added her to the list. And there's a, a 10, 12 names on the list. And uh, shortly after, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan who's gone toe-to-toe with her over issues in the Senate over the last year, um, tweeted out something about the AJC always giving um, Jen Jordan too much coverage. <laughs> <laughs> so they got a little back and forth over that. So oh, you can yeah. see where, where those, those rivalries, those tensions are starting to, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to form. All right, we got a lot more I want to talk about. I want to get to a break in a minute, but, but, but as long as we're talking about Jen Jordan, her passionate speech uh, against the uh, heartbeat abortion bill, I, I want to do a quick fact check uh, for those of you who were either listening to our show on the air yesterday or if you were with us uh, in Athens on uh, Monday night. Uh, Senator Frank Ginn, uh, who uh, came, th- we're very happy that he came. Uh, so did Bill Couser, so did Houston Gaines. It was great to have members of the Georgia General Assembly there. But I do want to uh, make sure that we correct something that a great many of you pointed out to us. At one point, we get, asked Senator Ginn to talk about HB 481, and he made a couple co- statements that uh, I do think require uh, a little bit of a correction. Um, one of the things he said was that when he arrived in the uh, Senate Nine years ago, a woman, and this is his quote, could have gone to a doctor in Georgia and had an abortion 30 minutes before delivery. And everybody that was in the audience said, no, there's no way that can happen. I said, that's what the law allowed. In fact, nine years ago, before uh, Georgia passed the bill that stopped abortions after 20 weeks, uh, when, when Frank Ginn went into the Senate, an abortion could not be conducted till after 20 
uh, before, I, I'm sorry, after 24 weeks, it was forbidden. So he's a little bit off in his uh, timing on that one. Uh, you couldn't have an abortion legally in Georgia, say, in the third term of the pregnancy. And then he said something that was even was really controversial, essentially. He talked about uh, something that uh, it, it called uh, live birth, essentially, abortion. Abortions that take place after birth. And what that really um, means is still a little bit unclear. But he said that it was something that a woman could have in Georgia. And uh, the fetus, if the fetus was born live, uh, there was nothing that could be done to save it. In fact, Georgia law requires that if a fetus is delivered with a heartbeat, uh, the medical intervention is required by law. So I think Frank Inn, uh meant to represent his position on, on the abortion bill, but I think we got to correct a couple of the impressions that he, he left. So just want to do that quickly. All right, let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we've come back. You know, it's really, really good to have you uh, here today, Mr. Evan. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Because maybe we can offer you some consolation <laughs> from a state house race that should have been over oh, months ago and didn't really end until late last night. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. Political Rewind. Sure. Thanks for listening to GPB, where this spring you'll hear a new innovative way of fundraising on the air. We're calling it GPB Stealth Drive. It's all about giving you more of the programs you come to GPB for and less fundraising. So as you're listening, you won't miss a minute of your favorite shows. But remember, we are public radio, which means your support makes the programs you hear possible. So please do your part now at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, the role prosecutors have played in contributing to mass incarceration and the new movement of reform-minded prosecutors. We talk with Emily Bazelon, author of the new book, Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. She's a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and teaches at Yale Law School. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Tamar Hallerman joins us from Washington, where she's the AJC's Washington correspondent, Greg Bluestein. Correspondent Greg Bluestein is in the House today. He, of course, writes political news for the AJC. Caesar Mitchell is with us, former president of the Atlanta City Council. And you know, I gave Jake's law firm a shout out. <laughs> we should do with yours too. Yeah, we, and we're in the same complex, That's right? Yeah. That's DLA right. Piper. <laughs> DLA Piper wanted to make sure. And Jake Evans, first time. Uh, panelist on the show. Jake, you know, you and Greg Bluestein both sent me a note about this. I I send out the day ahead of a show just a rundown to say to you, here's the things, panelists, that I think we ought to talk about, add whatever suggestions you have. And both of you sent me a note because I left an item off, and that was the third election, the (laughs) third time around for people to vote in House District 28. That's right? right. Dan Gassaway and Chris Irwin, you represented Dan Gassaway, right? First of all, why did we go through through? I left it off the note because, frankly, I'm just I was bored to tears <laughs> with the story. Why did it take three sure. elections? So it was a, and I was the lead counsel for uh, Representative, now former Representative Dan Gassaway, yeah. and it was an absolutely fascinating experience. Uh, back in May, it was May 22nd, 2018. There was the initial primary election between Chris Irwin. And Dan Gassaway, there was a 67-vote split. Chris Irwin had the initial edge. Uh, come to find out, the Habersham County Board of Elections and Registration made over 400 district misassignments, and it was concluded that 74 voters uh, were either assigned to House District 28 when they should not have been or were assigned to a district outside of House District 28 but should have been assigned to House District 28. That ended up going to a full proceeding and the judge concluded that more votes in the margin of error were illegal, or wrongly rejected, order a new election. The next go around, Chris Irwin wins by two votes. And uh, one of the voters who was eventually found to be illegal was a, a female called Patricia Bauer. My client, whenever they were counting provisional ballots, said, no, she's moved out of the district. They proceeded to count her vote anyway. At that point, he decided he was going to contest it a second time. So let's stop there for a moment. <laughs> so we should say that you, representing Gasway, had two big victories up until that point. 
That's right. It yeah. was only last night that things went south uh, for you. Yeah, and, and I, my, my representation obviously was limited on the legal side. I did no political consulting. So. Yeah, Chris Irwin trounced. 3,000 votes yeah. plus. It was the uh, deja vu, do over, deja vu. And the voters up there, I went up there for, for not nearly as long as Jake did, but I went up there for a day to interview voters. And they were, I mean, voter fatigue is an understatement. They were frustrated that this had to be taken three times. And I know you said you were kind of bored with the story, but it's not, it, it is a very important issue up there, of course, because there's 50,000 people that didn't have a representative for much of the legislative session. But it's also more than a parochial affair because it became a part of the overall voting rights debate yes. between Abrams and Kemp. Yes. And I thought, I always found that fascinating. And when Stacey Abrams wanted to run, an, uh, when, she, when her Fair Fight group ran an ad on the Super Bowl, who did she uh, spotlight other than a Republican commissioner from that district? Yeah, yeah Gassaway can be very uh, pleased that his case, uh, that <laughs> no, Jake dealt with, helped uh, give ammunition to Stacey I don't Abrams. think that was the case. He was trying to distance as much as he possibly could. Yeah, oh, all right. So I, I, I apologize for being flippant because, Greg, you're right. It, it is, you know, an election is a very important thing. And tomorrow, this is something that Stacey Abrams has already used against the way we run elections in this state. But Democrats tomorrow are going to continue using an issue like this. And voters are going to be paying attention to how, how f- ephemeral sometimes a voting outcomes seem to be. We never used to think that was the case. Yeah, but it's, it's proven to be an issue that, that really animates, especially the Democratic base. And you saw, you know, H.R. 1, the first, you know, the, the symbolic kind of most important bill, according to Nancy Pelosi, in, in her new House majority, kind of the first big bill they passed was a big election reform bill that, that sought to deal with a lot of these issues, not only funding for upgrading voting machines, but also, you know, retooling the, the Voting Rights Act, kind of bolstering it again, and, and all sorts of stuff related to elections and voting and fairness and automatic voter registration and stuff. So clearly, this is an issue that, that Democrats feel like they have the upper hand going forward. All right. Well, we're going to watch how that unfolds. I I do think it's interesting that even though Governor Kemp has now signed the bill into law, which establishes that we'll use touchscreens with a paper record to vote on uh, in the 2020 election cycle. And even though there have been some other reforms that were added to that measure, the lawsuits against Georgia, Caesar, and the way that Georgia has been handling its elections continue to move forward. Judge Totenberg, federal Judge Totenberg, still has the opportunity to weigh in on how we're doing our elections. So this issue is far from settled. It is. All right. Um, let me, uh, tomorrow, while we've got you up there, uh, let me, let me uh, turn to you about another issue just to start off the conversation again. And, and it's, I, I, we're not going to get into it in much detail today, unfortunately, but just the other day, we received news that two Georgia veterans in separate incidences in different parts of the state committed suicide at VA facilities. One at the VA Medical Center in DeKalb County, an enormous facility. Uh, the other one out in DeKalb County. Uh, Dublin. I, I said, did I say, I'm sorry, Dublin and DeKalb County. Thank you. Uh, Tamar, it, it becomes an issue of particular relevance for us because Johnny Isaacson is the chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, and he has for quite a long time uh, s- s- w- talked about and looked at ways to reform the system. We don't know the circumstances of these deaths in, in their entirety, but we certainly know that veterans have long been frustrated, angry about how hard it is for them to get care. I would have thought, I would think this must have hit Senator Isaacson and his committee really hard. Yeah, and they were the ones who, I believe, announced the second death um, in Decatur uh, earlier this week. And, you know, it's one of those tough issues. There's a lot of different interlocking problems. There's a big VA wait time scandal, you know, how long it takes people to actually get appointments to even get to the VA facility. There's a question once they're there, if they're getting the right kind of care, especially if they're getting the mental health counseling that, that maybe they need. Um, and, and how do you handle such a huge bureaucracy? I believe it's the second largest federal agency after the Defense Department or, or 
somewhere up there, tens of thousands of employees. And it's an issue that's kind of been dogging the VA for the last 10 years. So how do you even begin to tackle it? Um, there was a question a few years ago where VA was appropriated a, a pot of money from Congress to, to deal with this issue, and they were barely spending any of it, or they didn't have people in place to deal with it to spend the money. Um, so it's something that, that Isaacson has promised to, to deal with. But um, you know, at this point, uh, I guess we wait and see. Caesar, one of the reasons that Johnny Isaacson has gained a reputation for being able to work across the aisle uh, to form partnerships with Democrats is because of veterans' mm-hmm. affairs. I mean, it, it's not a partisan issue for the most part. Every, both parties say we want to do everything we can uh, for the veterans. So, so in some ways, he does have the ability here to bring Democrats and Republicans together and try to look at some of these problems. But as Tamar says, this is just an overwhelming problem. And and to think that veterans are not getting the care they deserve, and some of them decide that they would rather end their lives than continue to have problems beyond just whether they're getting care. It, it's yeah. very troubling. It's a horrible situation. I think as a country, we should be ashamed. Uh, you know, Tamar stated very accurately that if you look at some of the reports that have been done, GAO did a report, and it found that $57,000 out of $6.2 million available was spent on the issue of veterans in distress and suicidal. Yeah. Uh, the report also found uh, that leadership has not been assigned, top leadership has not been assigned to even pay attention and apply effort to this issue. Uh, so there's a lack of attention, heads are in the sand, and there are no resources going to an issue that is real. Maybe a part of it is that uh, we don't want to admit that we have veterans who serve our country, come back, and are under distress. Jake? Yeah, yeah. I, to me, this is a bipartisan issue. I mean, mental illness is an, a real problem across the board, particularly for veterans, people who have suffered from po- post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, they're faced with some of the, the hardest situations a human being can be faced with. Um, and it's a situation that I think needs to be on the forefront. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's not a sexy issue. It's not an overly political issue. And unfortunately, in our country, if it's not sexy and it's not political, a lot of times people don't talk about it. But I think it needs to be talked about more. That's a great point. When people lament the lack of bipartisanship in, in Washington, this is a quiet contrast. And it doesn't get that many headlines. It gets headlines when, when bad things happen. But mm-hmm. but that committee has forged some of the most consensus-driven yeah. bipartisan legislation in Washington and, and but it's just a lot of a lot of times it's under the radar. All right. Well, we're going to watch to see. It was a sad, sad story. Um, we are just about out of time for today's show. Tamar Hallerman, we always appreciate it when you give us an opportunity to talk to you from Washington. I guess you go on vacation while they're all off on Easter recess, right? I'll actually be down in Georgia next week. So oh, not vacation. Well, come and say hello. Tom, Tom Faust is uh waving that you should come in. We'll talk to you about that. Uh, Cesar Mitchell, you know we love having you here and hope you come back soon. Jake Evans, first appearance. How did, how did, what did you think? Did you have fun? Did oh, you enjoy it? Was it was great. It was great. I enjoyed it. Good conversation. That's right. Yeah, you were a good addition to the show. Thanks for being here. <laughs> yeah, Greg you. Bluestein, obviously, we uh, always love having you here. Thank Thanks you. Um, and Greg, by the way, on his way over to the governor's office to uh, hear what the governor has to say about how the state might help with relief for the far- farmers in South Georgia. He'll be posting that, no doubt, in the Political Insider blog, and I'll bet you there'll be a story with his byline on it in the paper tomorrow morning. Before we leave you, a couple of quick notes. First of all, again, thank you so much for all of you who turned out in Athens to see us. We had a big crowd. You were really enthusiastic, and we loved having you. Also, a big thanks to WUGA, the public station in Athens. Uh, Jimmy Sanders and his team did a great job helping us prepare Uh, to get that show on the air. Finally, I want to tell you, Friday we have a very different political rewind for you. Right now at the Alliance Theater in Midtown Atlanta, two strong, wonderful female writers, Pearl Clegg, novelist and playwright, and Faith Saley, a commentator on CBS Sunday Morning, and many of you hear her on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, are going to come in. We're going to talk a little about the works they have on each stage at the Alliance, but we're going to also talk about women in society today with Faith and Pearl and Jim Galloway. See you then.